Hello to all you boys next door, mums and dads, new weds and nearly deads, and welcome to Dangerous Amusements, a podcast where we talk about the music of Elvis Costello. I'm Stu Arrowsmith, and in each episode I'll be joined by a special guest to chat all things Elvis, and I'll be asking them to help me compile the ultimate Elvis Costello playlist. Now remember, don't make any sudden movements, because these are Dangerous Amusements. I'm delighted to be joined by a singer-songwriter who's had one of her recordings hand-picked by Elvis Costello for a very special playlist. Welcome to Dangerous Amusements, Emma Swift. Hello, thanks so much for having me. Oh no, thank you so much for coming on. How are you doing? I'm doing very well. Good. Well, I know a lot of people listening in will be fans of and will have heard uh, your record Blonde on the Tracks, which we're going to talk a little bit about, but what are you working on at the moment? I've got two records on the go at the moment, and uh, one is an album of my own songs called Beautiful Ruins, and I've just tracked that on the Isle of Wight, and so hopefully that'll be out uh, pretty soon. Uh, you know, in when I say soon, I mean any time within the next six to twelve months. <laughs> and um, and I've also got um, I I put out Blonde on the Tracks, which is an album of Bob Dylan songs in twenty twenty. And I will put out another album of uh, interpretations of songs, but next time around it'll be Lou Reed. Oh, so wow. I've got both of those projects uh, in the works at the moment. Yeah. Oh, so you're going for all the simple artists first, <laughs> all the yeah, Moon and June songs. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely, yeah. I go for deeply unchallenging projects. Uh, no, <laughs> oh, okay. and beautiful ruins is a quite a beautifully oxymoronic Elvis Costello s title as well. I think, isn't it? Well, I mean, Elvis Costello was one of my very first favourite songwriters, and one of the things that really drew me to him was his love of language and wordplay. And uh, I was really magnetised that by that, particularly as a as a teenager. And uh, I really. Um, Ever since I, you know, first heard my first Elvis song, I got really hooked on that stuff. So I do try to bring a similar love of language and and a love of classic songwriting into my own work. Oh, great. Well, I'll ask you all about your intro to Elvis's music in a minute, but let's start with the thing I mentioned in the opening there, because you had this incredible accolade of having Elvis pick out personally one of your recordings uh, for a playlist that he put together for the, that was the opening of the Bob Dylan archive, wasn't it? Yeah, that's right. And uh, I had no idea that it was happening. I had no idea that Elvis Costello had even heard my album of Bob Dylan songs. And so it blew my tiny mind when uh, <laughs> uh, someone told me, you know, as so often happens now, I got the news via Twitter. Someone said, oh, you're in the Bob Dylan archive. Elvis Costello has picked you for this jukebox. And I mean, what an extraordinary thing to happen. When I first made the album of Bob Dylan songs, it was really a labour of love that I was doing for myself and I didn't actually think that the record would see the light of day. And then when the pandemic happened, I kind of was twiddling my thumbs and decided to put it out. And um, it's an album that's really uh, been very rewarding and has found listeners that I never thought would find it. Um, and, and to know that Elvis gave one of my Bob Dylan interpretations, the seal of approval is very special. Yeah. Really, really a lovely, nice thing. I'm still, uh, even thinking about it now, I'm still just, you know, absolutely delighted. 
Yeah. And what was your reaction when you when you saw that on Twitter? I probably screamed, probably, (laughs) (laughs) you know, it's been a long time since I was a teenage girl, but, uh, you know, I've still got a teenage girl inside of me somewhere and uh, it was a real moment. Yeah, I can imagine. So that was for the track Going, Going, Gone that Dylan released on Planet Waves. When you were recording those songs and, and the other Dylan songs that you did on Blonde on the tracks, what was the key to interpreting them for you? What were you trying to hook into in the songs? Well, I'm a big believer that for me to interpret someone else's song, I really have to be able to stand in the song and feel like it's something I could have written myself. It's got to have an emotional resonance and truth to it, um, which is why there's so many wonderful Bob Dylan story songs that I just couldn't do. Mm. (laughs) I couldn't bring justice to a song like Hurricane or even um, something like Times They Are A-Changing, I think that they're definitely beyond me, but some of his more um, romantic love songs and definitely the miserable ones. I love a sad song. (laughs) Just wait till you hear the Elvis songs I've picked. I love something that's really heartbroken. And and so that's what kind of drew me to, to them. I mean, it was very much a time and a place record, though, because if I made... A collection of Bob Dylan songs album again I'm not planning to but if I were to it could be entirely different songs it was just at that moment of time in my life those were the Dylan songs that really punched me in the gut I've just reached a place where the willow don't bend not much more to be said it's the top of the end He doesn't know this, but I'm an enormous fan of Almost Blue, his country covers record. And uh, that record really changed my life when I first got my hands on it. I mean, I I was born in 1981 and I didn't hear Almost Blue until the mid-90s, <laughs> really. That's because my teen years were when I was getting into Elvis. Yeah. Um, but some of the interpretations on that are absolutely brilliant. I mean, I'm thinking in particular... Uh, of um, Good Year for the Roses Mm. and I'm Your Toy, I think it is on the track list. But (laughs) uh, it it goes by another name. But, uh, yeah, I love that record. And, I'm, you know, and I think Linda Ronstadt's version of Alison is actually the first version of Alison that I heard. Mm. So interpretation is a a craft and it's um, when it's done right, it's, it's a really beautiful way to listen to music yes and does that then inform your own songwriting does going under the bonnet of a bob dylan song or a lou reed song does that give you something when you come to write your own material it makes writing your own material really intimidating (laughs) incredibly difficult actually but there's definitely something to be learnt in in melody and phrasing particularly phrasing i think and word choice when uh, when you're listening to the great contemporary songwriters so it's, uh, it's there's um and songs reveal themselves over time too they they take on they shape shift they take on different meanings for different decades and life experiences yeah okay let's go back to the beginning for you and Elvis Costello's music when and how did you encounter his songs for the first time 
So in the mid-1990s, I was a teenage girl living in a very suburban town in Australia called Wagga Wagga, population about 50,000 people. And it's quite an isolated place in that it's equidistant between Sydney and Melbourne. But when I say equidistant, I mean, it's about six hours drive from yes. both of those cities because yeah. <laughs> Australia is such a large country. And, um, you know, I was really just getting in the first flush of my obsessive music phase. I'd got my first job at a bakery and every week I would go down to the local uh, record shop, which really at that time was mostly compact discs, mm. and I would just load up on CDs And around this time, Elvis Costello's catalogue was having quite a significant reissue phase with Rykodisc. And so I was getting a new Elvis Costello album every week (laughs) for about, it felt, you know, for at least a good half a year, there was a new Elvis Costello album coming into my world. And um, it was in the pre-internet days, so you know, I played those CDs to death. There was no other way to listen to music except from the radio. And and so that's how I got to know and love the records. But because of that, I would say that what I have as an Elvis Costello fan is a very scrambled memory because I probably got almost blue an imperial bedroom and then got My Aim is True, Get Happy and Armed Forces or It's all sort of jumbled up in my mind. I didn't listen to anything in a particularly chronological way. Um, And it's only retrospectively now that I can go back and hear his development as a songwriter or Mm. hear where he was at emotionally or on his journey as an artist uh, and get a better, broader sense of it. Yeah. Funnily enough, my love of Elvis Costello is basically traced back to Australia as well, because it was on a trip there when I was a little kid that I first heard Flowers in the Dirt, the Paul McCartney record, which of course has the the four Costello co-writes on and everything flowed from there as well. So there must be something in the water in New South Wales back in those early 90s, I think. <laughs> it's fabulous. It's, I'm very glad to hear that. Yeah. You know, particularly though, I mean, those those late 70s sort of new wave, aggressive, angry, feisty Elvis records are brilliant albums to listen to as a teenager. So there's no wonder that that music really resonated with me at the time. And um, I actually, my senior year advisor at school had to call my mum on the first day of my year 12, which is our final year, because I wasn't there. She wondered if I'd dropped out and I'd actually gone to Sydney to see Elvis Costello in concert with Steve Nye. <laughs> so my, my my priorities were to go and see gigs and uh, it was yeah. a wonderful show. It was on the Painted From Memory tour. And, uh, oh, wow, yeah. Yeah, he played a big part in my early musical life, sure. Yeah. Yeah. Obviously, we don't advocate truancy on the podcast, but if you are going <laughs> to go to any concert, then I think, you know, doing the Painted From Memory Tour is fair enough, I think. Um, yeah. Actually, this is something we've never really spoke about on the pod because I don't think we've had an Antipodean guest before, but where was Elvis's presence within the sort of popular culture scene in Australia? Is he a, a big name when you were growing up or was it all kind of midnight oil and in excess back then? Oh, I mean... 
Around that time, it's probably a little past Midnight Oil and In Excess. In the 90s, it was very much Australian bands like UMI um, and and British bands like Blur and Oasis and Pulp, and Mm. those were the other groups that I was listening to, Björk, um, those kinds of things. But it was a kind of glorious wonderland because it was this reissue. So there was a lot of high-quality music from the past coming out alongside really high-quality contemporary music elvis has a pretty strong fan base in australia i'd say i mean his shows are always well attended and he's toured there pretty regularly i've seen some fantastic elvis costello gigs there over the years and and then also in the states and in the uk i've been very lucky and i think as fans too we're spoiled because he's one of those guys you know like dylan who tends to stay out on the road quite a bit yeah. Well, I'm going to ask you about some of your favourite live shows uh, shortly, but perhaps we should go to the bit now that has scrambled your brain and scrambles every guest's brain, which is where I force you to pick out some of your favourite Elvis songs that we can put onto our playlist. So the playlist for this season of the pod is called Bedroom Alibis. All of the guests pick out six songs, one per decade from the 70s up to the 2020s. Uh, and the first one, we go back to one of Elvis's earliest recordings, Radio Sweetheart. My head is spinning and my legs are weak. Who's step dancing can hear myself speak. Open the eyes of the ugly girls that settle for the lies of the last chances when slow motion drugs. Wallflower dancers You come here looking for the right to glory Go back home with a hard luck star And I can't hardly wait around Until the weekend comes to town Play one more for my radio sweetheart Hide your love I absolutely adore this song and yeah, I only found out about it because, you know, one of the first albums that I got had all of those outtakes. Yeah. <laughs> and and I definitely have twangy tendencies. I mean, that's no secret. I've lived on and off in Nashville for 10 years and this is one of the more country-sounding Elvis Costello songs and that's probably why it didn't make the grade on the original record. But I certainly really, really dig it. Yeah, well, it's got that sound, hasn't it? John McPhee plays steel guitar on this one. The other musicians, Niccolo on bass and Mickey Shine on drums. Elvis called it his first professional recording. It was laid down in September 76 at Pathway. Originally slated to be his debut single, but in the end appears as the B-side to Less Than Zero and was left off my aim is true for the reasons you say, because of the sound differences with the rest of the record. But um, yeah, I'm sure you could imagine this coming out of one of the bars on Broadway, I can imagine, in Nashville. Yeah, I mean, I think I'd love to hear someone like George Jones or Johnny Cash putting their voice to a track like this. It's it's gorgeous. And it's also, I mean, I think of it kind of as a companion piece to the Joni Mitchell song, You Turn Me On, I'm a Radio, Mm. which also has a little bit of a honky-tonk feel. And I know that Elvis Costello is a big Joni Mitchell fan, but I strongly doubt that he was talking about his Joni Mitchell fandom in the 70s. (laughs) You know, I think that was probably considered quite uncool at that point to be harking back to the Laurel Canyon stuff. Mm. It's remarkable, isn't it? This is one song you can think of things like imagination is a powerful deceiver all these other great tracks that 
can't even find a room on his debut album. He's got such a stockpile of great songs, literally from from the word go, really. Yeah, I mean, what a um, what a lucky cat to have that <laughs> prolific gift. I mean, it must be wonderful to be able to pull so many great songs out of your hat, and then to have an abundance of choice on the record. Um, yeah, and you know, you, you hear the outtakes, and you think, "Gosh, a completely different album could have been made," and you wonder what might have happened. If, if that had been the case, what path he, he might have gone down. Yeah. And he's so creative and imaginative lyrically right from the start with those lines, you know, the goose step dancing and the hope in the eyes of the ugly girls. These are just such interesting little phrases and images that he was he was doing right from the start. Yeah. Um, he's definitely got those... Uh, Lovely bookish British tendencies, I think, that you hear in other songwriters like um, like Jarvis Cocker and Morrissey and, you know, Robin Hitchcock, my partner. You know, yeah. it's a it's a place where you're not, af- not afraid to kind of wear your spectacles on the, on the record and, <laughs> <laughs> and say I love language and I love books and I love imagery. And yeah. it's, you know, it's quite a way down from you know, I want to hold your hand even. <laughs> and it's really not that far in time either. No, that's right. So when you were first hearing these Elvis records for the first time, did you already have your own musical ambitions at that point? Did you know that was a road you were going to go down? I always wanted to be a singer, I think, um, but I never really know, knew how to go about it. I certainly wasn't writing my own songs at this point, but alongside the Elvis um records that I was listening to I was also very very into uh Linda Ronstadt and um Ella Fitzgerald sings the Gershwin songbook Mm. and Billie Holiday and um those were the albums that I was listening to a lot at the time and Linda was a great inspiration for me because she was an interpreter of song and when you go through the track list of Linda Ronstadt records there's so many brilliant songwriters that she is interpreting. She did Judy Sill, J.D. Souther, Warren Zevon, Elvis Costello. The list goes on and on and on, and she really brought something magnificent to the table with her beautiful, desperately sad, aching voice that the songwriters perhaps didn't have within themselves. Um, so I guess... Yeah, that's that's the stuff that was kind of percolating at the same time as as these early Elvis records. The sun on tears in her eyes Say you wouldn't care about it She's telling all of those lies She swore she never told before But I doubt it so he bit his tongue and tried on to capture his breath When she said I waited all my life for just a little bit Say you wouldn't care about it Say you wouldn't care about it The song that you're choosing from the 1980s for our playlist comes from an album that I know is very dear to your heart, Imperial Bedroom, and the track that you've chosen is Kid About It. Yeah, I mean, what a desperately sad song. Mm. Um, Imperial Bedroom to me is the most beautiful, profound, and 
I guess, you know, if if I uh, if I could only listen to one Elvis Costello record for the rest of my life, this would be the record. Right. Uh, I'm I'm obsessed with it. And um I, you know, when I was reading his book, I kind of found out that they'd started recording it the week that I was born <laughs> in. <laughs> and so it sort of makes sense to me that this is the album that I'm really enchanted by. Yeah. It's um yeah, there's so many gorgeous songs on it. But Kid About It has this desperation, and I really like that in a song. There's two things I really want a song to have, and that's I'd like for it to be, oh, three, I'd like for it to be a love song. I'd like for it to be a bummer. I want it to be sad. But I also want it to have that desperation, and Kid About It really has that. It's just a, a magnificent listen. The way they bring in the chorus is just gorgeous. I also think, too, Imperial Bedroom is a, a real step into um, an emotional place, uh, an emotional depth that Elvis hadn't really done before. So I'm I'm quite enchanted by this record as a kind of turning point in his career that sort of foreshadows later albums that I'm also very infatuated with, like King of America. Um, I really love that one too, and, and Blood and Chocolate. Mm. Costello wrote Kid About It the morning after the murder of John Lennon and did leave out a reference to the tragedy that was in the original lyric. Elvis describes the song as a rejection of tarnished and jaded games of adulthood. Um, yeah, if, if it had become an on-the-nose tribute or reference to what had happened the night before. I guess it wouldn't convey quite the the poetic uh, weight that the song carries in the version we have on Imperial Bedroom. Yeah, it's a really challenging thing to do, isn't it, as a songwriter, to kind of take what's happening in the moment and at the time and make it transcendent so that it still resonates decades you know perhaps even hundreds of years later at, mm. at at this point in the history of rock and roll um but yeah i mean i i'd love to hear a version where there was a reference to john lennon uh because i still think that that is a very heartbreaking moment in time yeah i, I you know i still <laughs> It happened such a long time ago, but I can still tear up thinking about John Lennon. Yeah. I, I, I go to New York, and every time I go to New York, I go to Strawberry Fields. So it's mm. sort of, it really is a a beautiful place, and it's it's kind of magnetizing. It's a it's a great place to go if you're feeling a little bit lost in the world to go and sit in Central Park at Strawberry Fields and feel grateful to be alive. Yeah. Even just standing opposite the Dakota is an incredibly emotional experience, isn't it? When you stand across from that entrance where where it all happened, you you can't help but feel the the emotion of the moment, I think. Yeah, and I think one of the um, really engaging things about Elvis Costello is that he's never really shied away from showing what a big fan he is of music. Mm. He's um, He's not frightened to say, oh, these are the things that I really dig, which is quite cool. Yeah. As a as a as another nerd, <laughs> I'm grateful for it. Yeah, yeah. 
We'll kid about it recorded in the Imperial Bedroom Sessions at Air Studios in London by the Attractions and produced by Jeff Emmerich. It was released in July 1982. And I know when you were thinking about which song you were going to go, you essentially sent the entire track list for Imperial Bedroom, I think, because <laughs> it, it is such a such a special album to you and such a great piece of art as well. Um, go on, just talk, talk us through some of the other ones that you really love on the album. Oh, um, I, yeah, I mean, Man Out of Time, I really love. I mean, and, and Almost Blue is, it sounds so simple. And then if you ever try to play it on guitar, it's actually quite difficult, or at least it is for me because I'm such a rudimentary guitar player. But there is, um, there's a real, um, the melody in Almost Blue is just so gorgeous and glorious to sing if you're a singer um and and just that use of the word almost it's it's such a great word it's lovely to sing and it's so um it's so bittersweet it's it's just I love I love that track and yeah I mean many others I could just listen to that album over and over I feel quite sad for Elvis's other albums of the 1980s that got neglected by this song choice because, I mean, brilliant mistake from King of America is uh, I used to work for the ABC News when I was in my 20s. (laughs) And every time I hear that line, she said that she was working for the ABC News. It was as much of the alphabet as she knew how to use. Her perfume was unspeakable. It lingered in the air like her artificial laughter and mementos of affairs. You know, that's that's probably one of my favourite Costello couplets. Yes. Yeah, if yeah. we were just talking lyrics, that's great. Dangerous Amusements, a podcast for tormented souls doused in the ashes of unholy crosses. You were talking about your skills as a guitar player. But of course, when you are playing your guitar, you are, in a sense, channeling a bit of Elvis as well, aren't you, through the, um, through the model that you play? Yes. <laughs> when I moved to Nashville, Tennessee in 2011, I'd quit my day job as a radio broadcaster at the Australian Broadcasting Corporation in Australia. And um, I had sort of given up reality for a while. I abandoned reality and thought, okay, I think I'm going to move to Nashville and become a singer. And I had a certain amount of savings in my account. And I'm a creative brain and I'm which means I'm often quite creative and fanciful with my finances and I don't mean that in a good way <laughs> and and so I went down to a, a place in Nashville called Corner Music and I was like I'd like you to procure me an Elvis Costello custom Gibson please one because I'm a super fan and it's a beautiful looking guitar it's a remake of the century of progress and so it's this beautiful dark wood with an all mother of pearl fretboard. It's it's not a subtle looking guitar. <laughs> it's <laughs> it's this kind of supermodel in in its way. And my line of thought at the time was, oh well, if everything turns to shit, I can always sell the guitar. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so it was like money in the bank, but just having it in my own home at the same time. And I'm relieved and pleased to say that I haven't had to sell it. <laughs> I've still got that guitar. <laughs> and is that still your guitar of choice? 
Yeah, I write a lot of songs on that guitar. Her name is Veronica. Of course. Um, from the song, of course. Um, and uh, I love that guitar. It's it's a beautiful one to play. I also play a Gibson Hummingbird, which is slightly older and um, a, a more, it's from 1969. And I've, I've, I've been writing a lot on piano, though, of late, and uh, it brings out a different kind of persona in my songwriting. So... But Elvis Costello, as far as I know, hasn't brought out his own line of pianos. And even <laughs> if he did, I'd, I'd probably want to buy the Steve Naive piano <laughs> rather than the Elvis Costello one. <laughs> Imagine that, getting the Steve Naive piano and then actually being able to play piano like Steve Naive. <laughs> Be glorious. Here lies the powder and perfume That is So Like Candy, and that's your song selection from the 1990s, a track co-written with Paul McCartney and which appeared on the album Mighty Like a Rose. Yeah, yeah, it's a really great song. I'm My 90s albums of Elvis, I'm very into All This Useless Beauty. I probably yes. like the production more on All This Useless Beauty than I do on Mighty Like a Rose. But So Like Candy is such a great song. You know, in my sort of master list of the 30-odd Elvis Costello songs that I would cover if I was doing an Elvis Costello record, So Like Candy's right up there in the top five. It's uh, it's just got fantastic, brutal lyrics and um, the uh, just the little right amount of devastation that I enjoy as a singer. <laughs> Yeah, it's a gorgeous song. Have you heard the demo version as well of him and Paul doing it together? You know, I haven't heard the demo version of it. That's it. As with all of the demos of those songs, they just sound great. Just the two voices and two acoustic guitars, it's gorgeous. But then I think Elvis's studio version is is so good as well. It carries the magic of the demo with the, the polish of the, the final Mighty Like a Rose album, I think. What did I do? To make her go Why must she be the one That I have to love so So like candy Yeah, I, I should really get into the demo Because I, I really like um, Listening to different versions Of different of songs And hearing what's changed mm. You know, how words have shifted And how meaning shifts When you've got a big band Crashing behind you And lots of keyboards and stuff like that. Um, there's a delicacy to the demo that is, um, it's a bit of treasure, really. Yeah. 
Elvis went on to talk about this being probably the best ensemble piece that ended up on Mighty Like a Rose. Um, obviously produced by him with Mitchell Froome and Kevin Killen. Came out on Mighty Like a Rose in May 1991. A really good review of it in Melody Maker by Paul Lester that year, who described it as easily the standout track from Mighty Like a Rose. This gorgeously crooned and gently withering harangue suggests that Elvis's curmudgeonly old bugger phase may produce some of his best work yet. <laughs> I love that, curmudgeonly and old. I mean, how old would Elvis have been in 1991? Probably younger than I am now. Uh, yes, me too, I think. I don't think he'd hit 40 by that point, had he? Well, I mean, it's funny because I guess at that time in music, you know, the 1990s, it was 1991 was just that little moment before everything was swept away by grunge mm. and uh, things took on a much heftier sound. Uh, but now that we're in the glorious 2020s and musicians don't really retire no. anymore, I don't think that someone would, I don't think a reviewer now would revert to an artist in their late 30s or early 40s as curmudgeonly and old. <laughs> but I could be wrong. Maybe I'm reading the wrong magazines. <laughs> Maybe. And I think you were also the, the first person I've ever heard describe the 2020s as glorious because I don't think that's quite how they've panned out so far, apart from your record, of course. Oh, well, I think that as a music fan, though, it's a really fascinating time to see people like Bob Dylan still making records up until his 80s. Um, David Crosby, who sadly passed away very recently, was in the middle of making an album, um, you know, to know that Stevie Nicks still goes out on tour and then all the people that follow after them. I think as a younger musician, that's a really exciting and wonderful path that they're forging for the rest of us because I hate the idea of we seem to be living, despite the climate crisis, we seem to be living to be getting much, much older and I just don't think that youth is the only time that we should be permitted to indulge in our artistic tendencies. <laughs> mm. Well, let's take that as a, a little bit of much-needed hope and optimism for this decade. Look, I um, I try to bring the hope. I sing these terribly sad songs and, <laughs> and, I'm, and I listen to really sad music, but I'm actually a quite hopeful, optimistic, mm. sunny person. Yeah. Great. Well, let's just, while we're in the 1990s, let's just go back to you telling us this was your first Elvis gig was just before the end of the decade uh, going off to Sydney. And I know you've seen him in so many places, so many different gigs since then. Just uh, just give us a bit of a an idea of some of your favourites, some of the favourite shows you've seen in that time. Well, when I saw the Painted From Memory tour in 1999 in Sydney, um, what struck me was the intensity of that particular gig he'd just come off making these this record with Burt Bacharach and uh so his voice was in really elastic shape fantastic shape and it was just him and the piano and so it was quite in your face and as a fan I really loved the purity of that and still to this day my preferred Elvis shows are actually the more stripped back shows mm. I saw him in Glasgow and I think it was 2015 or thereabouts I'm not fat I'm not fabulous with dates it could be <laughs> either side of 2015 um and it was just him with the acoustic guitar and then he had I guess about 
15 other acoustic guitars on stage and a piano. And that was a particularly moving show as well for me. He did a really beautiful version of the Joni Mitchell song, A Case of You, and it just left me weeping. I was devastated. I really didn't know that he was going to pull that out of the bag. (laughs) But So that's been a highlight. I mean, I saw him last year on a rooftop in New York in August playing with the band and Nick Lowe opening the show, which was brilliant. And that was a really special gig too, but that was more special because it was still one of those post-pandemic, okay, we can actually see live music again Mm. gigs. And I was hanging out with a friend of mine, Ken, and we both knew that we were Elvis Costello fans but I don't think either of us realised the extent of each other's fandom until we were standing side by side at this show in New York with the sun setting, singing all the words at each other. <laughs> <laughs> and it was just really fun, mm-hmm. Great, a great experience. Great. Okay, well, let's move on to the next song that you've chosen for us. And I must say, I'm slightly sailing blind now because you were still making your mind up when we started recording which song you were going to pick from the 2000s. So this is going to be a test of my powers of recall of facts and dates and things for the song that you've chosen, or alternatively, a test of how quickly I can Google the stats to go with the song as well. (laughs) (laughs) Go for it. The song that you've gone for from the June 2009 album, Secret Profane and Sugarcane. Yeah, I've um, I've gone for uh, How Deep Is The Red. Yeah, it's beautiful. Is this not a pretty tale? Is this not a riddle? A bush shoots arrows through the air. A bird drags notes from a fiddle. Again, another devastating Elvis song. And I also really love the production on this album because I, you know, as we sort of told at the beginning of this episode, I'm a fan of twangy Elvis. And I really like that he's surrendered to that on this record. And it's 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 wonderful to hear him giving in to his country music tendencies. Yeah. This has been quite an underrepresented record on the podcast, actually, Secret Profane and Sugarcane. I think we've only had maybe one or two other uh, choices from that record over the past couple of years. I think it's it's quite underrated, isn't it? And I think there are song, you know, songs like All Time Doll. Um, there's some great work on this record. I think that one of the challenges for any artist who is prolific is as prolific as Elvis Costello is that there are always going to be albums that don't get the love that they deserve simply because there's just so much brilliant material to choose from mm. and <laughs> and uh, hopefully people will go back and listen to it uh, yeah after this it's um I often wonder you know if if an artist sort of just put out one album a decade would that sort of everybody just go oh you know five stars <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, And also with music now, I mean, the sheer volume of music coming out worldwide in the digital age is, you know, it's more and more challenging than ever before for any artist anywhere to Mm. grab attention all the time. 
Have you changed your listening habits as as the sort of industry has changed? I really, really love listening to music on vinyl. Mm. Um, I find that digital music listening, which I do do, is quite an unsatisfactory experience for me because it becomes, it's a little less intentional. It lives in the background. If I'm listening to something on a digital playlist, it just rolls into the next whatever. You know, I think I was streaming Elvis the other day and then, you know, they put on Scott Walker afterwards, which is fantastic. I love Scott Walker. But if I'd been listening to an Elvis album on vinyl, I would have been greeted with silence and a moment to pause and reflect and enjoy that record and then flip it over and start again. So I do like, um, I'm quite old-fashioned in that way. And, you know, it's really funny because vinyl wasn't even really very popular as a choice in the 1990s. It wasn't, (laughs) it it was a throwback even then, Um, but it's still my favourite way to do it. That said, I recently... um, been going through a cassette phase. Oh wow! <laughs> and um, and I like cassettes because I've got a cassette player in the kitchen. Right. So you know, when I'm doing really ghastly, mundane household chores, I can put on an album. I've got Paul Simon Graceland on cassette, and uh, you know that'll make any house sparkle. I can guarantee it. <laughs> you do get the old problem of it wearing out, though, don't you? I can remember a, a teenage camping holiday when our copies of uh, Outer Time and Automatic for the People just wore away as the days went by, and they were barely listenable by the end of the trip. Yeah, and it was always heartbreaking if you're on like a family road trip and you've only bought a s- certain selection of cassettes, and then one of them gets all chewed up in the Walkman, and then you sort of... I don't know, left with some shitty cassette your mum's brought. (laughs) That doesn't happen to kids these days. No, no. How deep is the red? How Deep Is The Red was originally conceived as part of the planned Secret Songs opera. It was produced by T-Bone Burnett and released on the album Secret Profane and Sugarcane in 2009. Now your song that you've picked from the next decade is from the same family if you like because it's again produced by T-Bone Burnett and actually features many of the same musicians. We've got Dennis Crouch, Stuart Duncan, Jerry Douglas and Mike Compton. We also have Mark Rebo and Jeff Taylor, Pete Thomas and Steve Naive. This is from the 2010 album National Ransom and the song is I Lost You. So this record is pretty strong in my memory because it's an album that he made between Nashville and Los Angeles and it was just when I was moving to Nashville, Tennessee and I got very excited to think that Elvis Costello was making albums there 
And uh, the particular track that I chose is a co-write that he did with a country songwriter called Jim Lauderdale. And Jim Lauderdale is a big George Jones fan and has one of those classic country, you know, lonesome, longing voices. And so I really like this song. Um, and I've seen them play it together a couple of times as well. I know that they appeared together at Hardly Strictly Bluegrass in San Francisco, at least on a couple of the years that I went. And dear listener, if I'm sounding vague about Hardly Strictly Bluegrass, it's because I went every year for about 10 years, sort of, or eight years actually, every year up until the pandemic, so 20 11 right through to or 2010 right through to 2018 or so and um every time you just get massively stoned in golden gate park because that's the thing to do (laughs) and it's glorious but it all becomes a bit of a blur National Ransom was recorded over 11 days in Nashville and LA. Uh, Sound Emporium and the house in Nashville were the, uh, was the, where it was recorded over there. Is that a familiar place for you and your music? Yeah, yeah. yeah. I've recorded at Sound Emporium before and, um, it, you know, it's that classic country thing. I mean, it's such a storied place to go and make records, Nashville. And 12 days sounds about right. I think I was looking back at, I can't remember which Elvis record I was reading about that took, you know, 12 weeks or something. It might have been Imperial Bedroom, something like that. And and when when you hear 12 weeks and then you hear 12 days, yeah, that sounds like a Nashville record. It's all kind of done and dusted and, you know, very quick, moving on. Yeah. And obviously you're based over there for quite a bit of the year, aren't you, yeah. as well? I imagine that music just kind of flows out of the every building in the place. Is that kind of the vibe that it has. Absolutely. Nashville's a place, though, that it really keeps its secrets, I think. You can find out a lot about the history of a place if you ask someone, but it's quite different to Britain, say, where, you know, if Charles Dickens lived in a house, there's a blue plaque. <laughs> if T.S. Eliot once had a meeting with Ezra Pound in a coffee shop, there's a blue plaque. <laughs> One of the pubs nearby me is a a famous old George Orwell pub and you sort of know about it, whereas in Nashville it's a little bit more like you'll be in a place and then you'll discover, oh, this is where Dolly Parton cut Jolene. <laughs> and it's a, Or Tammy Wynette, who really is, um, you know, one of the most influential singers in my life, Tammy Wynette and Sandy Denny, <laughs> which is an interesting cross-pollination. But, you know, you go into places and go, oh, this is where Tammy Wynette did apartment number nine. It's, And I'm, I imagine for Elvis, Costello is a big fan of country music and of the music of Bob Dylan too. It's, it's a pretty fabulous place to go and record. I mean, one of the things about Nashville is that everybody there is such a geek, which is really brilliant. You know, <laughs> if you want to go and find out about, you know, any of the music there, you just got, you just got to go and ask and, and people will tell you or, you know, you can look up who played on this record and say, oh, OK, do you think they'd play pedal steel on my record? Oh, they might. Great. <laughs> it's a very generous town. Southern hospitality is, is not a lie. Escuchando el viscos 
And the final song that you put in on the playlist is from the 2020s. It's the Spanish model version of Radio Radio from 2021. The track is produced by Sebastian Chris and features new vocals by Fito Paez and the original backing track, of course, performed by Elvis and the Attractions. Yeah, I think this is Radio Radio is one of my favourite Elvis Costello songs to hear live. You know, it's always a, a fun jam. It's really electric feeling in the audience when you're with other people and we're dancing along and listening to Radio Radio. And um, I guess the reason I picked this album from the later, most recent um, Elvis work is because I run a record label and I'm, you know, I'm very actively involved in the music business and how you keep your projects going and projects alive. And I think that one of the things that Elvis Costello has been very good at over the years is making shrewd, canny, clever business moves. And I think that this is what this album's definitely one of them. Bring out all of your songs in Spanish. <laughs> and uh, I have these fantasies about more Elvis Costello projects in different languages, you yes. know, like Imperial Bedroom in French would be fantastic, <laughs> you know. Um, I, stuff like that I'd be very, very, very up for. Yeah. And that was one of those where when you hear that he's going to do it, you think, oh, right, okay, I'm not quite sure what to expect from this. But then the minute you hear it, you think this really works. Yeah, and it's, you know, it's really, it's a shame because it's, we don't hear much, we don't get much music in translation. Mm. You know, often it used to be more of a thing. You know, the Beatles would go and record and they would have songs in German and songs in English. But these days it's sort of, okay, this is my country of origin and this is how the songs were written. And translation in in the world of poetry at the very least is is one of those it's like opening another door into a song mm. so it's it's gorgeous and it's removing an element that to some people might be a barrier i mean elvis was very self-deprecating when he said once you took his vocals off you realize there was a great song underneath which of course he's teasing we know he's a great vocalist and he sings the original so well but i suppose a bit like when you cover the bob dylan songs Hearing it in a different voice just opens it up a little bit more to other people. The, the way another voice conveys the song can sometimes reveal something different that maybe wasn't there in the original. Absolutely. I mean, the singer-songwriter thing was really only invented in the 1970s, 1960s, which sort of got Dylan to blame for that. And um, before then, it was artists like Frank Sinatra singing brilliant songs that weren't weren't his at all um so it's sort of uh i think people can be quite harsh on covers or interpretations kind of forgetting that there are whole um songwriters who never actually performed their own songs i mean hart and rogers for example wrote my funny valentine mm. which elvis costello does a beautiful version of um but you don't hear Hart and Rogers singing it, yeah. <laughs> and yeah, and I, and I never listened to Elvis Costello um, singing "My Funny Valentine," going, "Oh gosh, I wish I could hear the original." <laughs> <laughs> Though I would like to. <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
Well, that's brought us through the uh, the song choices. I know it's um, it's a tricky old task, isn't it, just to try and boil down each decade to to one song. Some decades much more difficult than others. I think there's a line of people who want to chase me with bats because of uh, the 1980s, particularly, and just trying to pick one song from them. But um, you've picked some great songs there that we'll put onto the playlist, bedroom alibis that will go on the website uh, at the end of the season. Um, as we're recording this, we know that we're going to get uh, a reissue of Painted from Memory in the very near future with some additional material on there. Do you have any other sort of things on your Elvis Costello wish list that you'd that you'd like to hear in the years ahead? Oh, I'm, I didn't know about the Painted from Memory reissue. I'd really love to hear the outtakes from that. I was very taken by that record mm. when it first came out. And um, I loved the way that he was really leaning into those melodies and and singing his heart out i mean god give me strength is just fantastic Mm. and i mean if you're a singer and trying to sing that song's really challenging (laughs) it's it's no easy feat but it's it's such a beautiful track and i really look forward to that um i'm i mean i i'm always interested in what Elvis Costello comes up with next. And, mm. and so, uh, you know, I'm sure he'll delight in surprises. Yeah. And obviously, as someone who has gained a reputation now for being a, a brilliant performer of other people's songs, what about the possibility of Emma Swift sings Elvis Costello? Oh, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I'd love to do an album of all Elvis mm. songs. Um, I've got a couple of other projects in the pipeline at the moment but I I certainly wouldn't rule it out he's definitely been an enormous influence on my life and my music and I mean it's really lovely when there's such an enormous back catalogue to go through and and cherry pick songs from it's it's a real gift because I I'd never I'm quite obsessive in a way so I, I put all of the Dylan songs on one album. Uh, I'm putting all of the Lou Reed songs on a Lou Reed album. I also put all of the Elvis Costello songs on an Elvis Costello album because I think it's a nice way to re-examine the songwriter. I wouldn't jumble it up with, oh, here's Elvis and here's Johnny Marr and <laughs> here's Joni Mitchell and here's a grab bag of things that I like. I, I like the specificity of um, of deep diving into another songwriter's career and uh yeah I'd, I'd love to do something like that for sure great and we'd love to hear it perhaps just bring the conversation to a close for us just sum up what elvis's music means to you elvis's music for me was a gateway into another kind of life uh, a poetic life an enchanted musical literary life that didn't really exist in the place that I grew up listening to his music was one of the first chances I got to dream of something different and uh, I'm, I'm very grateful fantastic thank you so much for coming on and sharing that with us oh thank you thanks so much for having me it's been absolutely lovely to chat with you about Elvis Costello
Thank you so much to Emma for appearing on the show. You can follow her on Twitter at Emma Swift Sings. Her website is emmaswift.com. Her album Blonde on the Tracks is terrific and is well worth checking out if you haven't already. Emma's song choices will be added to the Bedroom Alibis playlist that I'll publish on dangerousamusements.co.uk at the end of the season. Uh, you can get in touch with me via the website as well if you want to and by following at Dangerous Amuse on Twitter and Dangerous Amusements on Instagram. My theme music is performed by Gary Mulcahy. Thanks for listening to Dangerous Amusements. Sending you our love and vicious kisses. <laughs>